Uh, we're going to continue what we started last week, all right? And we are talking about questions concerning the Bible, all right? Um, you can find about anything you want out there. And there are people who try to twist, as, as Peter says, even in his day, they were twisting the scriptures, try to make it say something other than what it says. They don't understand it properly. They don't interpret it properly. And there are people who are motivated to do that because they don't want to believe in God. All right, But I want to know what the real truth is. So last week we talked about, we just started with the fundamentals, remember? What is the Bible and how did we get it? All right. So today we want to talk about the Bible. We know kind of how we got it. And we got it. But can we trust it? Can I believe what the Bible says? So I want to read what the Bible itself says about this. We have several passages that are going to come up here, so you might want to meditate on these later. Write them down. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 through 25, he says that we have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Through, listen to this, being born again, through that, that precious seed of the gospel that, that never perishes, that, that is eternal. And then he says... Through the word of God that lives, it's alive, and abides forever. Most everything, everything we can see, all the stuff going on in our world isn't going to last. It's all temporary. This lives and abides forever. So he says, he quotes Old Testament, because... All flesh is as grass, or like grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Amen, right? So this is what the Bible itself says about it. This is the word of God that lives and abides forever. So I know what the Bible is. Now I got to decide, do I really trust this? Am I going to have faith in this? So here's the question that I'm throwing out there today is can I trust it to be God's word accurately preserved, handed down, and translated into a language that I actually speak and can understand? Can I trust that we have that? Because that's key. We live in a world that all kinds, I mean, we're, we're living in important days. We know that. But if people would understand the Word of God as it really is, and if they would not only understand it, but apply it to their lives, it would take care of all the problems that we have. And people who say they believe that this is the Word of God, if they really believed it and lived according to it, amazing what would happen. The greatest miracles you could imagine. Uh, so I heard even this week again about a guy that was on a trip and sitting by someone. It was a long flight, and this is the questions. They got talking about stuff. Of course, the subject of Jesus and the Bible come up and said this person knew quite a bit about the Bible. But um, when it came to Jesus, he said that he actually believed, contrary to what the Bible says, he believed parts of the Bible, I guess, but that Jesus actually did not die on a cross, but that he lived a long life and became an old man. He married and had a lot of kids. He actually believed that. And, you know, he had reasons why he thought he should believe that. Um, I also um, know that um, uh, there was, uh, you know, this discussion comes up with people and uh, talking about the Bible. And a guy asked me one time, he said, you actually 
believe all of that stuff in there? He's another one that, you know, there's some good things in the Bible, but yet, because you really believe all of that? I mean, you really believe all that stuff about a virgin birth? You really believe all that stuff about a resurrection? You really believe that? And I said, yes, I do. (laughs) I believe it with all of my heart. And I have faith in it. Now, the faith that I have in it isn't like just a blind leap kind of faith. There is substance and there is evidence upon which it is based. And that's why I want to make the case for the faith that I have today. And this is just going to be a taste of it. You can go so much deeper into all of this, and you should, because everything we do and believe needs to be based on solid understanding of the Word of God. Without it, there's not going to be anything but chaos. There's going to be anything but lostness and darkness. And since everything else is going to pass away, all the stuff that distracts us, all the stuff we pour time in, and since this is going to live and abide forever, don't you think this ought to be a priority in our lives? Don't you think that since this book has been around so long and that, as we established last week, there's nothing else like it. It is at least, you have to say, unique that we ought to give attention to it. Don't you think anybody that's, that's, that's hearing this, listen, I want to challenge you that at some point in your life, you need to give an honest look into the scriptures, an evaluation. And you've heard this and you think this. People have all kinds of opinions. But is it really based on accuracy and on facts and do you have the right information if i'm going to make a decision about something that lives that lives and abides forever if i'm going to make a decision about this book which is going to be one of the books open when we stand before god on that last day okay judgment day i want to make sure i've got the right stuff about it i want to make sure that i make the right decision not just what feels right to me or what's convenient for me Because in the end, that won't matter. I need to have the real deal about the real word of God. And that's why I want to share with you a little bit. And this is, like I said, you can go as deep into this as you want. About why I trust this is the word of God and that we have it. There are several billion people running around on planet earth right now. Who believe exactly like I said. Like I do. They believe this is the word of God. You really can't ignore that, can you? And so... I want to take a look at this and some of the reasons why are as follows. Are you ready? Are you excited? All right. that You'd be surprised how much that helps. Because I'm excited about this. Nothing that excites me as much as hearing from God and God's presence being in me. There's nothing in the universe like that. This is real and this is powerful. Okay. One of the reasons why I have faith in this as the word of God is because Jesus did. All right, it was endorsed by Jesus. I mean, when I when I first get a book or somebody hands me a book, you know what? One of the first things I do, I usually flip it over and read some of the uh, acknowledgments, and the and then I'll read some of the people who have. Um, um, I mean, what's a word I'm looking for? You know, people who have uh, you know like given their review. Uh, I'm 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 missing a word, aren't I, Scott? Yeah, accepted. Uh, endorsed. That's the word. Thank you. Thank you. It's right behind you. Yeah. I thought of it earlier to put it on there. Yeah. I try to see the endorsements. Okay. And, uh, and, and so that has a lot to do with whether I'm going to spend time reading this book. If there's people that I know are credible that have endorsed the book, then I will uh, be more likely to read it. Well, you can't get more credible than Jesus and Jesus's endorsement means more than anything else. 
uh, out there. So we talked about this some last week, but the Bible is divided into two parts. You have the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and also the New Testament. Well, last week we also mentioned how that during Jesus' time on earth, he accepted what we now call the Old Testament. It was all of the Bible they had at that time, right? That he accepted it as Scripture, Word of God, okay? That Jesus endorsed it as that. And I'm just going to throw a few verses out there that show that. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking about the Old Testament and the Old Testament law. And he said this, he said, do not think... Matthew 5, 17, that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. That old saying, not one jot or tittle, that's where it comes from, from our old English translation of the Bible. What that's really saying is, in our language, talking about you know, characters of the Hebrew alphabet. So basically, he could say it this way, that until he says, he says, till heaven and earth passes away, not one dot of an I or cross of a T. I mean, not a word, not a letter, not even a, a dot or a cross of the T would pass away. That's what Jesus thought about it. That's what Jesus said about it. Um, and then in John chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus was talking about an Old Testament passage. And he said this and about it. He said, and scripture cannot be broken. It was scripture and it could not be broken. You can do background reading on that if you want. In John 10, 35. And then in Mark chapter 12, verse 35, uh, he says, uh, he, in, in 37. Anyway, Jesus is actually quoting Psalm, what we know as Psalm 110. Jesus is quoting this, and Jesus says this. Jesus says, for David himself said. Now, we know David wrote that psalm. Jesus speaking about it. David wrote it, but it was, did you see what it says? By the Holy Spirit. That David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So when Jesus quotes that, that was written by David, Jesus says that David said it by the Holy Spirit. He wrote it down, but the Holy Spirit is the one who gave him the words to put down. And that's powerful what Jesus says about it. Um, Jesus not only endorsed the Old Testament, but he also endorsed the New Testament. All right? How did he do that? By personally designating the men who were sent out and they were used by him as the ones who wrote this down, that they were to speak in his name and they were to carry his word to the world. And this is so central to everything. This teaching claimed Jesus Christ as both fully God and fully human. And it was compiled and added to the Old Testament as the very word of God. It's very important you understand this. That these men that Jesus selected. These apostles. That he personally sent out. These men that he even met with. After he was resurrected. These that had been with him from the beginning. That he sent out. This is why. This is the authority that he gave them. That they were going to be the very ones. That were going to speak his word. So everything that was taught in the early church had to be traced back to Jesus or to the apostles that he sent out, the very men he sent out, and to Jesus himself. As churches were born and as the gospel spread and the apostles were involved in all of it, that's why when Philip was in Samaria and began to spread the gospel there, that uh, 
you all of a sudden you see that uh, some of the, Peter is going to show up. Some of these guys that were with Jesus are going to show up. Paul was one sent out later. He says, I'm kind of like one born out of due time that was sent out. But he was sent out personally by Jesus. And he said all the time, my message is not my own. I'm speaking what he gave me. So this is why everything that was taught had to be traced back to the apostles and to Jesus. And before it was all written down and preserved, here's what happened. Is that as people would teach, it's why in 1 Corinthians you have that passage where it talks about the preacher preaching or prophesying, speaking the word of God, and the others judge. It's not that they were sitting out there like, you know, slam dunk contest after preaching, holding up, you know, a seven, that's a nine, that's a five, you know. What they were doing is, is this what we've always heard? Is this what we've always heard from the apostles? Because they were still alive and they were ministering among them. Is this something different like Paul warned about, another gospel? See, so that's why they did that. But God saw to it, his word was written down, so we have it. So now, is he speaking or she speaking the truth from God? There's a pretty easy way to know. You weigh it right here. You don't take anything because I say it or anybody else says it. It's got to be based on the word of God. And God's word is complete. His revelation is complete. He's not giving us new truth that he hasn't given before because he said he's not going to add to it or take away from it. All right? Pretty much most of the cults are started by somebody having some new thing from God that wasn't already given to us. Paul, in presenting the word of God to the Thessalonians, listen to how he says this. I love this. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received, listen to this, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. All right, when I came and preached, I shared word of God with you. Listen, he says, You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So Paul knew what he was giving them was directly from God. And these men that Jesus sent out. So Jesus endorsed this New Testament as well. In fact, early on in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we saw last week that the early church on the day of Pentecost, that they continued steadfastly in what? The apostles' doctrine. That means their teaching. So everything had to be traced right back to these that Jesus sent out. Traced to them and to Jesus. Um, and so it was connected to the reliability of Jesus himself. All of the New Testament. So there's not only the fact that it's endorsed by Jesus, but that ought to be enough, right? Okay, looking for a little bit of interaction here, everybody. Okay, good, good. Yeah, but also the integrity of the text. I mean, if you take the Bible and you use the same rules that you would apply to any literature, something amazing happens. Ready? You ready? Let's take a look at it. So the question is, do we have the original Bible? I mean, how do we know that what we have is what was always there? Is it reliable? It's an old book. It's been copied thousands and thousands of times, even before there was a printing press. And, and, and surely, in all that time, things got changed. And how can I know after all this time that, isn't that a good question? Yeah, that's a very good question. And one that should be asked. All right? Let's look at that for just a little bit. The original languages, as you may know, of the Bible, are Hebrew in the Old Testament with a little bit of Aramaic. And the New Testament written in common Greek or Koine Greek. Uh, it wasn't translated, folks, into English until the later part, latter part of the Middle Ages. 
Okay? Uh, for centuries, copies of the Bible, Old and New Testament, were hand-copied very meticulously. They had to continue to recopy it because they wrote on papyrus and on materials that really did not last. They would decay. They continually had, and you didn't have books. So, you know, whenever they were reading, they had scrolls, which is pretty neat, you know, because you could just scroll. Like, we're back to doing that digitally now. Scroll, right? So that way you're not having, you know, and hey, now all of you finger lickers are in trouble, you know. You always say, and then turn the page, and then, you know, and people handing out paper. See, we can't do that right now because of germs. Because, you know, people always like, they get the thumb right on there. And, and I don't want a paper with a big wet thumbprint, you know, on it right there that I got to deal with that thing. I don't know what's living in that thumbprint right there. But anyway, you see, you're touching your tongue. See, you, 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 you're going to be in trouble. But anyway, but you could scroll. Uh, so, yeah, you're going to turn a page in your Bible now. <laughs> you just, 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 just don't lick your finger, all right, please. I, but they had scrolls and that's why they, it was a big, long piece. And it would rot. They didn't last. And we know that the printing press didn't come along until the middle 1400s. Revolutionized everything. Now you could print and it could be done. It, did, it was a tool that did a lot to spread the gospel, all, the word of God all around the world. Of course, I'm sure there were preachers getting up and saying, ah, we can't have that. They're printing bad stuff. They did print all kinds of bad stuff. Boy, we need to preach against that printing press. But yet it's used just like the internet today. A lot of bad stuff can happen with it, but we can use it for good. It's a tool, really. That's what it is. How do we use it? Uh, but anyway, the printing press revolutionary, revolutionized everything. And so some are surprised to know that we don't have the original papyrus that Paul and John and Matthew wrote on. And somebody somewhere thinks that we have it and it looks like this and it's not a scroll and it's written in Elizabethan English. <laughs> it wasn't. So how do we know that we have the word of God since we, it had to be recopied because those things weren't on materials that lasted? How do we know that what we have today matches the original? Well, it's actually pretty easy to check out. The integrity of any ancient writing can be verified by the amount of documented manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts that exist. Uh, and, and that if it's close to the date of the original and, and how many of them are there, right? So that's one way that we know number of manuscripts dating close to the originals. Now, here's the thing. I can rattle off a paragraph. I've used this illustration a lot, I know. And, and you can, I just have everybody write it down. I have it written down here and I read off of it. Well then, if even if we have 10 people, uh, some of you may spell words wrong. You may miss a word. You may, you know, say it a different way. But the uh, studies show that we could take 10 of you, compare what you've written, and the odds that all of you would make the same mistake at the same word or the same letter is, is pretty astronomical. So you can compare all of them and you can reproduce the original. By comparing the variations, right? That you're not going to make the same mistakes, everybody. Okay? That's how they do it. That's how they do it. Um, let me give you some illustrations of that. Go back, way back. Uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars. Only about nine manuscripts exist. Are you with me? Only about nine. The closest one to the time that it was actually written is about 900 years. 
Yet, after all 900 years, historians looking at nine different copies and comparing them, and that they probably won't deviate at the same place, the same point every time, that they feel like, historians feel like, that that is accurate. We can compare these nine, and they feel confident that they have, and they accept the accuracy of that text as being as good as original. Uh, Plato. We can mention Plato. You might be surprised to know there are less than 10 copies of Plato available to study and compare. And the oldest is some 1,400 years after he wrote the originals. Uh, But there's less than 10 of them. Yet scholars have determined that that is enough. That we can compare them and we feel like we have a fair rendering of the works of Plato. Now, when it comes to the Bible, wouldn't you expect at least a level playing field? Wouldn't you expect there to be, you know, nine or ten copies, you know, within a few hundred or a thousand years of when they were all written and we could compare them just like they did with the other stuff that they accept? Wouldn't you expect that? Well, let me tell you what we have. How about this? New Testament alone, over 5,000, not nine or ten, 5,000 manuscripts. Some date to within 25 to 50 years of actually being written. Blows everything else out of the water. The Old Testament is equally richly supported. In part by what happened in 1947 when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in a cave. In pottery. And as they began to look at them, they were, they were amazingly preserved in there all those years. And um, there were found complete copies or at least fragments of every single Old Testament book except the book of Esther. Many thought, wow, they were just jumping up down. This will give proof, proof once and for all of how that the Bible has gotten off course, how it's changed. Now we've got these, some of them a thousand years older than the oldest ones we had. We'll show you how that these changed through these years. But you know what? Even though there were variations and the skeptics were quick to point out, you go to college, you know, and you said in some of these liberal colleges where they're trying to tell you all this stuff isn't real and they'll be quick to point out and they'll make it sound like, boy, they're right. They'll talk about how many hundreds and hundreds of variations. Yes, see, guys, there were a lot of changes. What they don't tell you, all of those variations had to do pretty much with spellings of words and word orders. Even with the variations, there was no teaching of the Bible that was affected. The variations were word spelled different, mainly. Word order. Uh, The Bible blows everything else out of the water when you take a look at it. In fact, it was determined to have the most integrity of all ancient documents. And many archaeologists through the years have actually become believers Because of that very thing. Some even believe that God must have supernaturally protected it. For it to be preserved so well. So it stands up. In fact, the rules that they use for all other literature, the Bible blows it away. Then you might ask, why are there so many translations then? Can't they figure out what it says? Wait, translations have nothing to do with the integrity of the Hebrew of the Old Testament or the Greek of the New Testament. And as with any translation, our languages are constantly changing. And um, there's freedom in regard to what word to use that best expresses the Hebrew or Greek word in the way that we talk today. As you know, our English language has changed a lot through the years. There are words that used to mean one thing when some of you are young, and they mean something totally different now. And let me say, if you're not keeping up with it, it's changing rapidly now. I mean, people who are speaking publicly, 
or posting things or tweeting things, you need to pay attention because not everybody may take it the way you say it. Is it crazy? I mean, it's scary how words are changing. And there's different ways of translating. Some translations that we have are word-for-word translations. They try to translate word-for-word. And I like to study and preach out of those type of translations. It's helpful. But, you know, sometimes when you're going from one language to another language, you can't hardly just take word-for-word because the languages and the cultures are different, right? And so usually whenever someone's actually interpreting for someone, they don't interpret word-for-word. They will interpret thought-for-thought. Like, here's what you said, here's what you meant, and they will put that in the way they would say it, okay? There are some translations that are dynamic. That means they are thought for thought. Some are literal or word for word. They're all good, and I use all of those types, like uh, dynamic, new living, uh, NIV, and many of those. Uh, Some of the more word for word, literal translations, the New King James, the Old King James was, uh, ESV, English Standard Version, uh, New American Standard, many of those are that way. And so the thing about it is, is that our language continues to change. Did you know in the early English translations, the whole object was that they could provide as accurate a possible translation in the language of the people and keep it updated as the language changed. And somehow with the uh, authorized or the King James Version, that stopped in the 1700s. It was first translated in the 1600s. Sometime in the 1700s, it stopped. And it's not necessarily the language that you speak today. Now, I know there are people out there, all kinds of conspiracies, all kinds. Listen, you need to be careful with that. As you look into it, they begin to fall apart. Same way. I want to get the right stuff. I want to know the right information on that. And, um, and then some people say, well, how come in some translations, there's a verse missing here, a verse missing there. Part of it has to do with those manuscripts. Some of the early translations were based a lot on the Latin as much as the Hebrew or Greek. That it was translation of a translation. Okay. And sometimes if there was just anything, they just put it in there. There's uh, maybe a passage in Matthew that somebody says, well, this verse is part of this verse is missing in that translation. And there's some big conspiracy to take something out of the Bible. And my thing is, is that they didn't do a very good job because in Luke's account, it's there. Right. And it sounds like when you look at the manuscripts out of the thousand manuscripts, there was only a two or three that had it in Matthew as well as Luke. But they went ahead and put it in there. It kind of looks like, as some of the scholars copied it, they may have made a note that, you know, from what they knew because they were also reading Luke, that Jesus also said this. The next guy to copy it may have put it in the text. There's a verse that deals with the Trinity in 1 John chapter 5. And, well, people get upset, but if that's not in some translations or it has it, you know, marked off as something. The problem is, is out of thousands of manuscripts, it's only in about four or five. And the truth is, is you don't need that verse to teach the doctrine of the triune nature of our God. And people want to fight and get all messed up over this stuff. The thing about it is, is that it looks like if it's only in four or five of the thousands that when in doubt, let's be careful. And so, but here's the thing with people want to argue about our different English translations and things like that. They want to argue, they want to fight, they want to divide churches. The thing about it is, if you really just read them and understand It doesn't change any doctrine of anything we're preaching and teaching. And so not only is it preserved, but we have good translations in the language that we speak today. 
If I were to go to a tribe and I were going to try to learn their culture and learn their language so I could translate the scriptures into their language, I would try to find out how they use words and how they communicate right now. I definitely wouldn't try to figure out how they spoke 400 years ago and translate it into that. Because it would really make it hard for them to understand. And that's why I think that you should, I'm not going to handicap anybody, you should use good, accurate translations and you should get into the Word of God because it is alive and it is powerful. Now, the other thing is historical accuracy. This is a big part of it. So we know it's true and we know we have what they wrote and we have it, God preserved it, but is what they wrote true? Can I trust that? Good question once again. Very good question. So this, we ought to investigate this. In fact, many writers in the Bible claim that they wrote what they wrote just because they wanted to make sure it was historically accurate. Can I give you Luke's thought on that? When Luke was writing his gospel, when he first wrote it, and God put it on his heart, he said this in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who, listen to this, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered, to, delivered them to us. So there was the people, those, you know, those people that were with Jesus, the apostles, they're the one, they were eyewitnesses, firsthand testimony, just like they delivered them to us. He goes on to say, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. And, and Luke was around, and then he was with those, he was with Paul, he was around the other apostles that had been with Jesus from the beginning, and he said, to have perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. That was the name of the first guy that got the letter that he sent it to. All right? It says that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. He says, I want you to know for sure this is exactly how it all happened. And it comes from those who were there and with him. And John, the apostle John, even invited the same accountability. In 1 John, he writes, it starts off kind of like his gospel of John. It says that which was from the beginning in John 1, 1. Which we, listen to this, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands handled concerning the word of life. You know, that's a phrase that refers to Jesus. So he says, I was there. I heard him with my own ears. I saw him with my own eyes. I touched him with my own hands. First hand eyewitness testimony. Are you getting this? All right. Then he goes on to say, this life, talking about Christ, was manifested or revealed. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which, he goes, says it again, that which we have seen and heard, declare to you. That's what I'm declaring to you. That you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Anybody got full joy out there today? Yeah, that's why this is here, that our joy can be full. I think we need to get more full of the Scripture, and then our joy will be more full. We have to live in fear and live in joy. Well, claiming this is still not enough. Outside investigation is warranted. Sir William Ramsey was an archaeologist who, because of the things that he found, caused him to become a Christian. Joseph Free was chairman of the Department of Archaeology at Wheaton College, and he wrote a book that's still good to use, Archaeology and the Bible. And they bring up some issues through the years, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Did you know that for many years, these critics teaching in colleges and things would say the Bible can't be true because Sodom and Gomorrah is a mythical story? 
Because there's no record outside of the Bible that these places ever existed. Therefore, this is another one of those myths until archaeologists found it. Right where the Bible said it was. They found the ruins. And by the way, there's a picture of it that you can look at. That's some of the ruins that they've dug up of the ancient cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Archaeologists were able to confirm it. You might be surprised King David was another issue. A lot of people teaching in universities and things like that. And a lot of critics would say that King David mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible. But there's no mention of him outside of the Bible in any of the ancient literature. So you know what? Many of them placed him on the same level as the mythical King Arthur. However, July 21st, 1993, they found a piece of a rock, of a stone, that, had, that was 3,000 years old. And it had writing etched onto it that recorded information about, guess who? The house of David. 3,000, there's a piece of that. And if you look, can you see my pointer right there? There he's highlighted. There he is. There he is. Once again, confirm what the Bible had said all along. See, we could just keep going with this stuff. They would teach and they would say that, well, there's no way the New Testament was written when it was written. Because, you know, the boats that were the size to hold 10 or 15 people, like it talks about in the Gospels that the disciples were in, they didn't even have those till about centuries later. So that proves the Bible was written centuries later by people making up the story. Until sometime in, what was it, 1980s, when the Sea of Galilee was at record lows, they found. Stuck in the mud, an ancient ship over 2,000 years old that was the size and exactly the way it was described in the Bible. There was your proof right there. And time and time again, these things happen. And it dated to the time of Christ. And once again, every time, there's never been an archaeological find that was valid that disproved anything in the Bible. Now, you watch the History Channel or Discovery, and I like watching stuff on some of those, but when it comes to this, they get it wrong. You know, say like, we found in this tomb something about Jesus. Do you realize Yeshua was like one of the very popular names that a lot of guys had in that day? Yeah, just because you found one that had that name doesn't mean it's him. But they do stuff like that, and ignorant and people who don't want to try to find the truth buy into it to the destruction of their own soul. That's why this is so important, folks. i got to wrap this up, I know. But one of the biggest things to me is this, fulfilled prophecy. Let me just give you an overview of this. The Bible deals authoritatively uh, with this stuff. And, and if it's credible, then it always stands up. It always is like it says. So it's fine to say Jesus, that the Bible is ex- accepted by Jesus. But is it historically accurate? Is it really from God? And prophecy being fulfilled is one of the best ways to find that out. Um, Um, If it was wrong concerning that, then we couldn't trust it. Well, just think about prophecy about Jesus. Much of it was, listen, 800 years before he was born, it was written. Are you with me? That it said he would be born in what town? What town? Yes, it's a test. Bethlehem, yes. Uh, It said ahead of time, hundreds of years before, that he would be of the house of David, born of a virgin. He would be later raised in Nazareth. All of this was in there. It even says that he would be betrayed for a specific amount of money. It's in there. And then it describes his death in a way that is describing crucifixion long before it was even invented as a form of death. The thing about it is, all of it took place. There's over 300 distinct prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. The odds of just one of them being fulfilled by him. Just one of them. Peter Stoner 
chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College, along with 600 students, figured the odds of just one of them. If just one of them fitting Jesus the way it did is one in 400 million. That's pretty good, huh? What about, let's just take eight of them. Eight of them fulfilled by one person. The odds of that would be one followed by a 10 with 17 zeros. I don't even know the name of a number that big. To have 48 of them fulfilled by one person. The odds are 1 in 10 followed by 157 zeros. I mean, that's a huge number. Okay? But we don't just have 1. We don't just have 8. We don't just have 48. How about all of them? Over 300 Distinct, 332 or so distinct prophecies fulfilled would be like a person randomly finding one tiny atom among all the atoms in a trillion, 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 trillion universes the sizes of ours. For the open-minded spiritual seeker who's trying to find truth, I want to tell you, the odds are in your favor. Come on. By choosing this book due to prophecy alone, a lot of people who set out as atheists and skeptics, became believers when they really looked at the evidence concerning the prophecies. But let me give you the last thing. The biggest proof of all, there it is. Changed lives. Changed lives. The lives of these apostles, the lives of a guy named Saul who was an enemy, became the greatest missionary ever. The lives of people down through the centuries, testimony for testimony. The lives of people that I know and I can even see here and that I'm thinking of in my heart. The power of change. Those are the biggest miracles of all. I mean, it might be a miracle to see someone that's sick be healed or someone that's lame get up and walk. But it's even a bigger miracle to see someone whose life is wicked and vile turn into someone who the light of God shines through. Someone who has been hurt be able to forgive. Someone that's been mistreated and abused be able to love. I'm telling you. Changed lives. But I want to say this. No matter how much evidence some people have. The number one reason people reject the Bible isn't because it doesn't stand up to intellectual scrutiny. Because you see it does. It's this. They don't want to deal with what it says. They don't want to deal with its claim over their life. They reject its authority. They reject God as being God over them. Here's the thing, folks. In the end, all the evidence in the universe won't do it for you if you don't want it. It's a matter of your heart. You'll find a way to not believe if you don't want to believe. The biggest hurdle is whether or not you will have the Bible and Jesus Christ lead your life. If you'll trust him completely for your salvation. That's the bottom line and that's private. That's a private deal between you and God. Evidence is here. We're going to have to answer before it one day. The question is, are you willing to believe? Pray with me. Dear Lord, I just ask that you would help us. 